0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open to John 16 if you have not had a chance to do so yet. John chapter 16. During Lent, uh, we've been going through chapters 15 and now through chapter 16 in a series that we've simply entitled In This Hour. The title is twofold. One, the hour of Christ, which he's spoken about all throughout the Gospel of John. That hour has finally arrived. His hour for him to depart from his disciples through his death, resurrection, and ascension. That's here. And so from this point forward, in this hour, our second meaning, in this hour, they will no longer be living with him physically present. That's the same hour that we still live in as disciples of Christ. Live post-death, resurrection, ascension, without him physically present, we've been simply asking the question, how are we to live as the people of God in this hour? Like even now, in 2018, with all that is happening in the world and all that is happening in your world, how, how are you and I to live as believers in Jesus? And, and what we've seen thus far is that we are to live abiding in Christ. We've we've fleshed that out in a lot of ways, but ultimately, underneath it all, even underneath what we're talking about today, is this bedrock truth. We're to live abiding in Christ or depending upon him, much like a branch depends upon a vine. Just like a vine pours its life into a branch so that it bears fruit. We talked about various ways that Christ pours his life into us, his peace, his joy, his love, so that we bear the fruit of a transformed life, a life that shows forth the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ, the love of Christ. Christ pours his life into us so that we bear the fruit of a transformed life. And last week, specifically, we saw that as our lives look more and more like Christ, we will get the same response from the world that he received. In other words, we won't just experience acceptance. Yes, there will be some of that. But there will also be rejection. Christ specifically warns us of hate. If they hated me, they will also hate you. Reject you. Persecute you. But ultimately, underlying all of that, Christ wanted us to see that he is sovereign over all the reactions we receive from the world. Even over the hate and the rejection. We were told when we experienced that, we are to remember sovereignty. Sovereignty. Remember that the hate and the rejection that we experience don't mean that things are chaotic or, or God is losing control. No, the hate and the rejection that Christ experienced on his way to the cross was not from chaos. It wasn't from God losing control. No, it was actually evidence that God was in control. For everything, including the rejection, including the, everything was happening according to God's sovereign plan. And it still is. He's still sovereign over suffering. Just like the cross of Christ, our cross, our suffering is not a sign that God has lost control. It's the opposite. It's a sign that He is in control. That things are happening according to plan. Do you see how this turns our suffering on its head? Like, like, therefore, our suffering should not make our faith fail. But it should actually serve to increase it. Do you see how that works? That's, that's where we ended last week. And, and so we look at that, and I'm like, great. All of that is Awesome. But I'm still left asking, why? Like, like, it's great, Jesus, that you've told me, you've warned me, suffering's coming. It's great that you've told me you're sovereign over it all, so it doesn't win in the end. But why this way? like why have you sovereignly planned the suffering of your saints how's that loving like like how is that for our good and his glory it is Jesus seems to think it is. I mean, I think that's precisely what he's unfolding for us today in John chapter 16. I think he's showing us that in this hour, his physical absence and our present agony is for his glory and our good. His physical absence and our present agony or suffering that we experience in this time, in this hour, it is for his glory and our good. How? Let's see it. That's a question. Let's let's dig into it. Let's see it together beginning in John 16. Look at the latter portion of verse 4. Jesus said, I did not say these things, these things about the world hating you, rejecting you, persecuting you, even killing you. And he said that explicitly in 16 verse 2. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus' disciples find themselves in the same kind of place, asking the same kind of questions that we are at this point. Jesus just told them, not only is he leaving but they will soon be suffering and he says i i did not say these things to you from the beginning because i was with you in other words i could protect you from these things i was i was with you. they've experienced opposition all throughout jesus's ministry we've seen it as we've walked through the gospel of john but all the opposition has been specifically directed at jesus but now that he's leaving, the world will keep on opposing him, but it will shift from falling directly on him to following on his followers, those who represent him. And he needs them to know that. And so he's told them, I'm leaving, you'll soon be suffering, and as a result, sorrow has filled their hearts. Why? I mean, that's actually like a a silly question to even ask, right? We're like, of of course sorrow has filled their hearts. He said he's leaving, and they're going to suffer. I mean, why do you even have to ask why? Can't you see why? They're losing something. I can see that. Jesus can see that. I think you can see that. Jesus points it out very purposefully. Look at verse 5 again. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He points out that sorrow has filled their hearts because. Do you see why he says it's filled their hearts? Because their focus is on what they're losing, not on what he is winning. None of them asks, where are you going? What is it that you're about to truly do? What is it that you're about to accomplish? Why is it that you're leaving? Truth be told, that question, where are you going, and those exact words, it has already been asked twice. Okay, Peter asked it back in chapter 13. Thomas asked it in chapter 14. But if you go back and you look at those questions in context, neither of them were actually interested in Jesus' destination Or what he was accomplishing by going there. No. They asked, Where are you going? in the same way that my kids ask me that question when I'm like leaving town for a a week. My kids say, Papa, where are you going? They're not actually interested in information about my destination, they could care less. The words may be, where are you going? But their meaning is, why are you leaving me? The the question is more of a a protest. And that's what it's been with these disciples. When Peter, when Thomas, when they've asked, Jesus, where are you going? What they've meant is, why are you leaving us? It's what Jesus points out in verse 5. As I've said, le- sorrows filled your heart. You feel like you're losing something. You're not interested in where I'm going, what I'm accomplishing. You just feel like you're, you're, their focus has been on what they are losing, not on what Christ is winning. Because here's the deal. His going away is about to win more for them than they could possibly imagine. Is that not what he says in verse 7? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. This is for your good. My leaving is for your good. Yes, it will mean that the world now opposes you. That the rejection that once fell on me now falls uh, falls on you. Yes, it means that the world will hate you and that you will suffer. But I promise that is also for your advantage. Everything that's about to unfold is for my glory and for your good. In our passage that we're going to get into next week, he's going to guarantee them that the sorrow they're experiencing will turn into joy. It's for their good. How? That's that's our question this morning, right? How can Christ's absence and our agony Be for his glory and our good. Be aimed at our joy. Your sorrow will turn to joy. How? Jesus gives a summary answer in verse 7, and then he unpacks it for the rest of the passage. So look at verse 7 with me. Let's read all of it. We've only been reading the first half thus far. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For, here's my answer, Here's why this is for your good. For if I do not go away, the Helper, it's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here's Jesus' summary answer. His going away, and all that will follow as a result, it's all for his glory and our good because... Through it, he will send us the helper, the Holy Spirit. And in this hour, we will live by the Spirit. If if Christ doesn't go, this is what he says. He says, if I don't go, in other words, if I don't complete my work, if I don't go to the cross and die for the sins of my people, if I don't rise to bring them new life, if I don't ascend to be seated at the right hand of the Father, proving my work is completed, if I don't do that, then we as his people cannot be cleansed. We cannot be made right with God. We cannot be made holy. And the Holy Spirit cannot dwell within us. But Jesus says, if I go to the cross, through it, to the grave, through it, to resurrection, to ascension, if I go, then I will send the Spirit. Get this with me. It's not that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't be in the same place at the same time kind of thing going on right here. That's not what's happening. It's that the Spirit dwells in us on the basis of Christ's completed work. In other words, the Spirit cannot be present in a person that Christ hasn't purchased. Spirit cannot be present in a person that Christ has not purchase. Jesus is saying, if I go by you with my blood, then I will send the Spirit to fill you with my life and my love. In this hour, you will live by the Spirit. You see, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's for my glory. It's for your good. Those two things are exactly what he unfolds for the rest of the passage. How us, living by the Spirit, is for his glory and for our good. First, in in verses 8 to 11, he's going to focus on how this is for his glory. And then in verses 12 to 15, he's going to focus on how it's for his good. So let's go into the first one. See it with me. How is Christ's absence and agony for his glory? Answer. Because the Holy Spirit empowers us to make Christ known. We're going to unpack it. How is Christ's absence and, and our agony for his glory? It is... Because the Holy Spirit empowers us to make Christ know. Look at verses 8 to 11. Jesus says, And when he, that's the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus is leaving, but that doesn't mean that his glory will be less known in the world. No, he says that the Holy Spirit will work to make Christ known through conviction. You see that when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he's going to convict the world. He's going to make Christ more known, and he's going to do it through conviction. He'll convict the world. Sounds really negative. The the Greek word that lies underneath the word for conviction here, it's used 18 times throughout the New Testament, and almost every time it means to expose someone's sin with the intent of bringing them to repentance with the intent of bringing them back to, to God. This is, this is a conviction of compassion. In other words, Jesus is describing, what he's saying about the, the work of the Holy Spirit here is not that the Spirit convicts the world and just that he points a finger at the world. It's like, you're so guilty. Sinners. Hoard fake righteousness. And your judgment's awful. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. If that's what you think it looks like for the Spirit to work through you to convict the world, that's not what's going on here. Okay? No, he's, he's not saying that the Spirit just points a finger at the world and says guilty, but that he wants to expose the Spirit's desires to expose the world's sin so that they might repent and come to Christ. This is compassionate. If the Spirit, what does it look like for the Spirit to empower you to make Christ known in the world? I think this is where it starts. He empowers you with a compassion for people that need to know Christ. And this is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9. I know, Romans 9, everybody's favorite chapter in the whole Bible, right? If you don't get that joke, don't worry about it, all right? But Romans 9 Paul says right at the beginning, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. Here's the Spirit's work in me, says Paul, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul looks at the overwhelming majority of the Jewish people who are lost and not believing in Christ. And he says, here's how the Holy Spirit empowers me. He spurs up unceasing anguish, a compassion that won't rest, a compassion so deep that if I could give away my own salvation in Christ for theirs, I'd do it. That is the Holy Spirit empowering you to make Christ known in the world. Do you feel that? Pray for that. God, empower me with this kind of compassion by, by your Spirit. The Spirit works to convict the world, to show them their sin, so that they might repent and come to Christ. Is that not what we see in the very first thing we're told the Spirit convicts the world of? We're told He convicts the world of three things, right? Sin, righteousness, judgment. And then Jesus tells us why the Holy Spirit takes aim at each of those specific things. The first one is sin. And he says he convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in Jesus. In other words, he works to expose their unbelief precisely so they may come to believe. He works to expose the fact that they live in darkness so that they may come to the light. He works to show them the glory that they're missing, the love they're denying, the life they're rejecting. How does the Holy Spirit do this convicting work through you, through me? I believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us to make christ known that's how he is at work all throughout the world to make the glory of christ known throughout the world the spirit empowers believers throughout the world to do this i think if you don't believe me if you're like jonathan i don't see it i don't see it in the text i think that that becomes even more apparent when we look at the second thing that the holy spirit convicts the world of we said he convicts the world of sin next we're told he convicts the world of righteousness which just sounds weird Convicts the world of righteousness. Look at verse 10. It tells us the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness because, is what helps us understand what he means, because Jesus is going to the Father and we will see him no longer. So if you weren't here last week, this might not make as much sense as if you had been, but I'm going to do my best without repreaching last week. Last week, we saw how Jesus convicts the world of its false righteousness. If you go back up to John chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, Jesus says that because of his words and because of his works, it was undeniable that he was God in the flesh. So no matter what pretension of righteousness people stood on, no matter if they claimed to know God, no matter if they claimed to be a good person or a loving person or whatever, no matter what they claimed, if they rejected Christ, they were rejecting God. Their false righteousness was exposed. If they could claim to be as righteous as they wanted, and we saw, we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, especially the religious leaders, the Pharisees, claim a type of righteousness and to know God. But Jesus says, when you encounter me, I am God. And when you reject me, your false righteousness is exposed. And he went on to tell us that that same thing will now happen with us. That when people encounter his followers and they reject his followers, they're really rejecting him. When they embrace them, they're really embracing him. If you look back up to chapter 15, verses 26 through 27, we're told the Holy Spirit will empower us. As witnesses of Jesus, will be empowered. We've seen all throughout 13 through 16 thus far. will be empowered to speak His words and to do His works. And if people reject us, it's because they're really rejecting Him. And if they see the glory of Jesus through us, it's really Him they embrace. This is how the absence of Christ is for His glory. Because by the Spirit, He isn't really absent, but powerfully present in the life of every believer. He's showing, His glory is being shown by the Spirit's power through your words, through your works, as a witness to the world. His absence is for His glory Because through it, the Spirit empowers us to make His glory known. You see how that works. And not not just His absence is for His glory, but I also said our agony. We know that His absence means that the rejection that once fell on Him will now fall on us. And I've said that's for His glory too. Even when we are rejected, even when we are hated, even when we suffer, it's for the glory of Jesus because... Through that, the Spirit is also empowering us to make Christ known. That becomes clear through the third thing the Holy Spirit convicts the world of, judgment. Sin, righteousness, and now judgment. I think that this one shows us how it is that when we're rejected, when we suffer, it's for the glory of Christ. Look at verse 11. It tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, quick poll. Who all has seen in your lifetime Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade? Alright, the rest of you, homework. right, I loved that movie as as a kid and throughout the whole film Indiana Jones is in a race against the, the bad Nazi guy probably don't really need the word bad right there, it's kind of implied in it. He's in a race against the Nazi guy to find the Holy Grail which the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus supposedly drank out of at the Last Supper. And in the climactic scene at the end of the movie, you've got Indy and, and the bad guy. They both arrived at the location of the Grail, but there's a problem. There's a ton of goblets before them. And there's this super old knight sitting there guarding them all. And, and the challenge is, in order to find the correct one, you have to choose which one you think it is, and you have to drink out of it. And the Nazi guy, assured by his girlfriend that this gaudy golden goblet is a cup worthy of the king of kings, he takes it and he drinks from it. And thus ensued the most horrifying 30 seconds of cinema I ever witnessed as a child. I rewatched this scene because I knew I was going to talk about it, and the CG is terrible by today's standards, but it's just terrible enough that it's still disturbingly terrifying. I had nightmares again. That's not a joke. Apparently, it scarred me and it dug up some deep wounds. Basically, what happens, if you haven't seen it, is the guy goes into, like, aging and super speed, and, like, his hair grows long, and he turns old, and gets all decrepit, and, like, just melts away, virtually. He's just left as a pile of dust on the, on the floor. The best part of it all, though, is that after all of this is over, the, the knight, the old knight that's guarding everything, he turns, and he looks at Indiana, a terrified Indiana Jones, and he goes, he chose poorly. Now, how insane would Indy have to be to drink from the same cup? That is the kind of insane judgment that Jesus says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of. He convicts the world of judgment because the ruler of this world, Satan, is judged. How? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We've already seen in John chapter 13 and verse 27, Satan himself is entered into Judas. Satan is about to throw all of his destructive power, even the power of death. He's about to throw it all at Christ, and Christ will defeat it all. He'll rise again and all of Satan's efforts will just disintegrate into dust as the stone rolls away and he is crushed. And that resurrected Christ gets to look at Satan and declare, you chose poorly. (laughs) The ruler of this world has been judged and found in the wrong doomed to eternal damnation how insane would you have to be to drink from the same cup as he and yet the world does just as satan sought the death of our savior so the world seeks the death of his saints that's what jesus says in john 16 and verse 2 and we When when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to value Christ even over our life, when when we value him to the point that we're willing to lay down our lives for him, we testify to the truth that he really did rise. He really is alive. And we have nothing to fear from the ruler of this world, not even death that he tries to deal our way, for he is judged. Christ rose, and so will we. The Holy Spirit works through our suffering to convict the world of its wrong judgment. He works through our suffering to convict the world of its wrong judgment. When you suffer and don't let go of the Savior, it shows the world His supreme worth. You testify to the world concerning the reality of the resurrection. He is real. He is alive. He is really sustaining me because He is supremely worth it. Your suffering shows the world the supreme value of the glory of Christ. It makes Him known. Christ's absence and our agony are for His glory. But how are they for our good? Like, Great, maybe we can see logically how this works. Christ being absent means that the Spirit is present in Christians all around the world. So he's being lifted up, proclaimed all over the world, glorified. His absence brings about our suffering, and that shows the supreme worth of Christ to the world because we won't let go of him no matter what. But how is it for our good? That's our second part of our question, and I think that's exactly what Jesus unpacks in what we have left, verses 12 to 15. How is Christ's absence and our agony for our good? Answer, because the Holy Spirit empowers us to know Christ. We're going to unpack that. How's his absence and our agony for our good? Because the Holy Spirit empowers us to know Christ. This should make sense, right? I mean... Our answer to the first question, how's Christ's absence in our agony for His glory, was that the Holy Spirit empowers us to make Him known. Well, if we want to make Him known, we've got to know Him. If we want to show Him as our treasure, He's got to be our Our treasure. And that is precisely what happens through his absence and through our suffering. We come to know him more and we come to treasure him more. How does that work? How does Christ's absence lead to us knowing him more? That seems backwards, does it not? Yet Jesus explains, beginning in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, before we can talk about what these verses have to say to us, we've got to recognize that they are specifically for Jesus' original disciples. They're sitting there with him. They're for them in a very special way. In fact, when you read through John 14, 15, and 16, when you read through those chapters, all of Jesus' instructions concerning the Holy Spirit apply to his original disciples in a way they don't apply to us. They do apply to us, but not in the same way. I know that because of various things that Jesus has said along the way. I'll give you one example. Look back up to chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness about me. In other words, the Spirit's going to come, and he's going to work powerfully through you to bear witness. He's not done. Because you have been with me from the beginning. Have you been with Jesus from the beginning? I have not been with him from the beginning. We've been in Christ, yes. And this does apply to us in a specific way. But there is a way in which it applies specifically to those who have been with him. The reference to the beginning is not to the beginning of creation, but to the beginning of his ministry. And he chose these twelve. He's spoken to them and said, I chose you out of the world. So he's speaking in a special way specifically to them. He's telling his disciples that the Holy Spirit will work through them as his witnesses in a unique way. How? Look at verse 13 again. Chapter 16, verse 13. He, the Spirit, will guide you into all truth. How's he going to do that? He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Everything that's about to come. Everything that's about to unfold, my death, my resurrection, you cannot bear that or even understand all the meaning of that right now, Jesus says. But afterwards, throughout this gospel, we've been told that there are tons of things these disciples did not understand until afterwards, after his death, after his resurrection, after that, the Holy Spirit will guide you into the truth of it all. He will guide you to fully see who I am influence to fully see what i've you got sorrow right now but it will be turned to joy he will guide you to see my glory in the gospel i know that's what he means because he says it explicitly in the next verse verse 14 he the holy spirit will glorify me this is what he's going to do he's going to guide you into the truth to show you my glory my glory in the cross. My glory in the resurrection. My glory in everything that is to come from now until the end of time. He's going to guide you into that. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has. His, his plan from before the beginning of time has been given to Christ. And Christ says, I have executed it. Throughout this gospel, he said, I don't say anything unless the Father has told me to say it. I don't do anything unless the Father has told me to do it. He's received everything from the Father, executed it perfectly, and now the Spirit is going to declare all of what it means to you. And that's what the Holy Spirit did in the lives of these apostles. He empowered them to know Christ's glory in the gospel. And by that power, they proclaimed it, and they wrote it. Again and again, throughout chapters 14, 15, and 16, any time Christ references the Holy Spirit's work in the disciples' lives, he ties it to his word. Every time. Go back to chapter 14. The Holy Spirit's going to come. What's he going to do? He's going to remind you of all that I said. Right here in chapter 16, He's going to take what is mine and declare to you. He's not going to speak, speak word. He's not going to speak on his own authority. He's only going to speak what I tell him. He's going to take what's mine and declare it to you, which is ultimately from the Father. That's what the Spirit did. And these disciples, they proclaimed it and they wrote it. And that same Holy Spirit still works through the same word to make known to us the same Jesus in all his glory. The Spirit... Guides us into all truth through the Word. He doesn't speak on His own authority. He declares to us the Word of Christ, which is the Gospel of God. Christ says, I, I received it from the Father. It's the Gospel of God. Do you, do you see what's going on right here? The, the entire Trinity, the triune God, has conspired together so that you may know God through Christ. Do you see that in verses 14 to 15? God has given all things to Christ. The direction, the movement is towards Christ. God has given all things to Christ so that we might know Him through Christ. That's been told to us since the beginning of the gospel that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. That's why he came to show us who God is. This is the testimony of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that in the ancient days God spoke to us through the prophets, but now in these latter days he has spoken to us through his Son. Jesus is the fullest revelation of the Father. The Father gives everything to Christ so that Christ may reveal him, and the Spirit declares all those things shows them to us, shows us the glory of Christ, so that we may know him. Did you see how everything, the Father giving it to Christ, the Spirit declaring Christ, glorifying, it's all centered on on Christ. This is why we center everything on Jesus. This is why a cross sits at the middle of, of our worship. This is why the table sits at the middle of our worship. The cross and the table, both things that point us to Christ. We, we sit in a circle, the band completes the circle, and we sit centered around the symbols that point us to Christ. This is why we center our time through the word on, on Christ. This is how God, the Trinity, the triune God has made himself known. The Father has given all things to Christ. The Spirit works to declare those things for the glory of Christ. This is the way the Spirit and the Father have worked for us to know the triune God through jesus and it is precisely through his going away that the spirit comes and empowers us to know jesus fully as the crucified and resurrected savior if christ doesn't go we don't know him as that we don't know him as the one who died We don't know him who is the one who rose, who ascended, and is seated victorious at the right hand of the Father. If Christ doesn't go, we don't know Christ. Christ's absence is for our good because through it, the Spirit empowers us to know him deeper, fuller, truer. That wouldn't be possible any other way. Christ's absence is for our good. Because through it, the Spirit empowers us to know him. The same thing happens through our agony. Our suffering. We've seen that Christ being absent means that the world's hatred of him now falls on those who follow him. But such suffering does not deter us from Christ. It serves us. Suffering does not deter us from Christ. It serves us with Christ. It helps us to know Christ more and more and treasure him more and more. How? I think that what he said overarchingly throughout this entire passage has been showing us how that works. He's told us that suffering is coming. As a result of that, he's promised to provide the Spirit to empower us through it. And the more that suffering comes the more we must depend on his power. The more we must live as a branch that depends on the vine. The more we have to depend, the more we come to know him. See how that works. I play this game with my children called Jenga. Some of you know this game. Right? It's, it's, if, you, if you don't, it's, it's a stack of blocks, like a little tower of blocks, and you take turns, and each person has to remove a block from the tower and set it on top. So this thing keeps getting taller, and the bottom keeps getting shakier, and you, you go around until this is all eventually resting on one little block, right? And eventually it falls, and whoever made it fall is the loser. I love this game, because I do not lose this game, because they don't understand physics yet. So, Ha! But here's the deal. Okay? The more blocks you remove, the more dependent the tower becomes on a singular block until that shaky foundation is all that is left. I think that suffering does the same thing in our life, but with the opposite effect. Suffering removes blocks From things that we think are our foundation. Things we think we depend on. Suffering removes things like financial security. Removes things like health. Removes things like relationships. You go through persecution, you lose relationships. Removes things like safety. Until the only block we've got left is Jesus. And it's then that we find out just how sure a foundation he is. Unlike Jenga, where things get shakier and shakier, Jesus proves sure and sure. Through suffering, you come to know the supreme worth of Christ. That you cannot know any other way. Talk to some old saints. Older believers you know who love Jesus and have a sweet walk with Christ. Talk to them. Ask them Where, when in their life have they experienced Christ the most, come to know Him the most, felt His love, His care? I have never had that conversation with anyone who looked at me and said, Well, you know, it was on the sunny days. It's on the days where everything was just going peachy. They'll talk to you about the most difficult moments of their life, they'll talk to you about cancer. About the death of a child, about the loss of friends. They'll talk to you about suffering. They'll talk to you about persecution. They'll talk to you about these deep valleys when they had nothing left to depend on but Jesus. And it was then that Jesus proved himself sure, and they came to know him, love him, treasure him in a way. They couldn't have come to any other way. Through suffering, you come to know the supreme worth of Christ that you cannot know any other way. This this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 when he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, you take everything this world has to offer, you set it next to Jesus, there's no comparison. It's lost compared to him. But he keeps going. He doesn't just say this as a hypothetical comparison. He says, this is played out in actuality in my life. He says, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, block after block after block, pulled out of my foundation. I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul says, in losing my safety, I had to depend more on Jesus. I got more of him. And losing my status, I had to depend more on Christ. I got more of him. And losing my financial security, I, I had to depend more on Jesus. I got more of him. And even when Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, he is staring down death in the face. And even in staring down death, he looks at it. And you know what he says in Philippians 1.27? Gain. You pull the last block you got. And it gives me all of Jesus. Gain. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You only learn that when all other ground gives way and sinks. All our suffering and agony is for our good because through it we are more than conquerors, according to Romans 8, because it cannot separate us from the love of Christ, it just gives us more of it. That's why we're more than a conqueror. Shades in this hour. Christ's absence and whatever agony you are going through, it is for His glory and your good. Through it, His Spirit is empowering us to know Him and make Him known. That's the answer to the question the disciples should have been asking. They should have been asking, not feeling bad for themselves and what they're losing. They should have been asking, where are you going? What are you about to do? What are you winning? Because that's the answer that Christ has unfolded. He is going to die and to rise and to ascend so that in this hour we might know him and make him known by his Spirit. Oh, shades, his absence and your agony is not a loss. It is the very means by which Christ wins. Trust him. Cling to Him. Know Him more. Treasure Him more. Make His supreme value known in this way. He has promised that He will empower you to do this in this hour. Live by His Spirit. Amen.